This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the many things that may be changed forever by the year 2020 is policing. There are calls for reforming the police and calls, of course, for supporting them, calls to defund the police and calls to give them more funds. There are also calls to break up or at least lessen the power of police unions. Well, Gregory Pemberton is chairman of the Washington, D.C. Police Union. Let's talk to him about all these things. Greg, good to have you with us. How are you? Thanks, Gil. Thanks for having me. Let me start with a really basic question. What's morale like on the force these days? Uh, well, that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't think it has been lower. And um, frankly, if you had you know asked me that question a month or two ago, uh, I wouldn't have answered that way. I mean, we, we have seen some tough times. I mean, uh, you know, hearkening back to, to 2015, I think we've been through this before. Uh, riots, sort of outrage, uh, protests, protesting directly at the police. And, um, you know, we saw something that was coined by the chief of the St. Louis Police Department called the Ferguson Effect. Uh, which really caused officers to sort of become apprehensive and um, uh, hesitant to engage in proactive policing. And, and that was a time where we really saw morale at its lowest. Uh, but now where we are now, I think what we've seen happen you know, over the past month probably makes what happened in 2015 look like child's play. And uh, the, the morale has responded uh, um, commiserately. Some of the reforms people talk about, I've heard officers supporting, like taking social services, such as dealing with the mentally ill and domestic situations away from the regular police force, along with uh, dealing with people on drugs or even alcohol, as long as they are not in a situation where they're endangering others. Do any of those things appeal to you and members of your union? Absolutely. If you're telling police officers that they're going to have less calls for service and less work to do on any given day, uh, we're going to be all ears and uh, we're going to be prepared to have a discussion about exactly how that works. Uh, the, the problem is, is that cities all over this country have been lumping those services back on police officers for decades because those various agencies that have been tasked with handling that have failed the community. And that's why police officers uh, have been enlisted to handle those things. So our position is certainly if you want to have less work for us, then um, that's not a problem. But our apprehension begins when you tell us exactly who's going to be handling these calls, because our concern is that it's actually going to be a little bit more of a danger to the community in certain aspects, or there's going to be uh, failures in providing those services uh, to those citizens. Well, part of that conversation also is where the money for that is going to come from. And some of those discussions, as you know, revolve around taking money away from the police and then giving them to either some kind of other force structure or some beefing up some kind of other social system to handle those things. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Well, it's it's hard to say. I think it's a great question, but without looking at what line items they're talking about taking the money out of, it's hard to say how it will affect 
the police department or any police department. Uh, but anytime you try to have a real wholehearted dis- discussion about what that really means, no one seems to have an answer. And if you ask five different people, they'll give you five different answers about that. And none of them will have any substantive content about how that really uh, would affect the police department. One of the things that keeps coming up is the issue of body cams, about whether they should always be on as soon as an officer leaves the car. There's even a money issue there, too, because some cities don't have the mainframes to just take on all that recording and save it. Uh, Well, I mean, I can only speak for the Metropolitan Police Department when it comes to body-worn camera policy. I'm not familiar with other agencies, but I know that our policies here are incredibly onerous. Um, the, the pre-roll is what we call uh, the, you know, the sort of backup time that's recorded before an officer activates their camera. Ours is at two minutes, which from, from my knowledge is, is much longer than, than some of the other agencies, at least metropolitan agencies that have body cameras. So that means when an officer actually presses the button to activate his recording, it's already been recording for two minutes. Uh, we have had discussions in the past with the department about expanding when body-worn cameras can be on or should be on. And unfortunately, you you start really bleeding over into privacy issues. Let me just flat out ask the question. You're running a police union in a majority black city. Do the police discriminate against African-Americans? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We, we, as you mentioned, our police department is uh, almost 70 percent non-white. I think the the vast majority of those are African-American officers and many of them are here from this area. Uh, and we've had these studies done before, whether they were done uh, by the DOJ or by outside groups, but people have come in and they've analyzed this agency and they've found that those problems do not exist. Um, and it, frankly, it, it would be uh, absolutely abhorrent to me to find out that there was officers that were out there that were engaging in systemic or, or active racism against citizens and other officers weren't reporting it. It's There's just um, those kind of situations do not exist within the Metropolitan Police Department. And for the 15 years that I've been on this department, I've never seen situations like that. Uh, so they're, they're, it's not helpful to us to keep bad cops around. Nobody is trying to do that. But, we, but what we do do uh, quite often is protect people's due process rights. Uh, so, for example, one of the arguments that's, that's bubbling up here in the District of Columbia is that um, the chief of police doesn't like it when arbitrators award people their job back after he's fired them. Uh, and what we find is that time and time again, that individuals who have been terminated, that their due process rights have been violated, whether it's a shoddy investigation, uh, the evidence doesn't support the charges, they weren't able to get the uh, investigation done in a timely manner. Uh, under the law. And so what we've done is we've taken those cases to arbitrators and the arbitrators have sided with the union. And the police department appeals to our public employee relations board, which is a, a, an agency here that reviews those cases, and they unanimously side with the union. Then the department appeals to the superior court here in D.C. and the judges side with the union. And the Metropolitan Police Department has even taken a number of those cases to the D.C. Court of Appeals and the, the D.C. Court of Appeals panel has ruled in favor of the union in very many of these cases. So the question is, who's right here? Is it the union, the relations board, all of the court systems? Are they right about these due process violations or is the chief of police right? Uh, and I think that there's there's an interesting hypocrisy going on that people are accusing the police department uh, from not being able to respect people's rights to also in the same breath saying that the chief of police should have carte blanche to fire whoever he wants whenever they want. So, you know, we're, we're just out here to enforce the protections that exist in our collective bargaining agreements and under the law, under the D.C. code here, here in the district, uh, that people aren't um, mistreated as employees. 
And, and we do that regularly. And, and frankly, the number of cases that they've sort of touted around that seem to be concerning, I, I think they probably have about a half a dozen going back 15 years. But the, the department, you know, they, they investigate almost 4,000 uh, misconduct investigations a year. And, you know, the vast majority of those are minor issues where an officer fell asleep in his car or was rude to a supervisor or showed up late to work. That's typically the type of misconduct that we're talking about. Uh, but what they're trying to do is throw the baby out with the bathwater here is to say that you guys aren't entitled to a fair disciplinary system that has due process. And they want to throw that out so that any time that a police officer upsets the mayor or the chief of police, that they can just get a piece of paper and here's your pink slip, pack up your locker and go. And, and that's not fair. As a final question, then, Greg, would you be OK with one of the reforms that people are asking for many governors, many uh, police chiefs, uh, even as well as mayors? with more transparency in making the discipline records of police officers public at the very least to other forces for hiring purposes because many police chiefs have said we're in the dark somebody comes to us they have experience we don't know that they have a a heavy discipline record Uh, yeah so that's something that's been proposed here in some of the the legislation that's going on in the district of columbia and and we've made it clear to the dc council that we don't have any problems for that what's funny is that the union has been advocating for better hiring practices for decades and we, we want better police officers. We want more educated police officers with better reasoning skills and, and better experience and, and are better able to uh, sort of talk their way through situations. And and we, we're not interested in hiring people who have been fired or have been forced to resign from other agencies. So we absolutely support that. Uh, you know, there's no there's no question about that. That's that's just about making police departments better. But in terms of releasing the, the disciplinary records, um, you know, our, our disciplinary records are available to, to every defense attorney. Uh, for every case that any officer is involved with. So, you know, as a detective, if I go arrest somebody um, and that case goes to court, well, every discipline issue that I've ever been involved in is going to get turned over directly to that defense attorney and it's going to be used to impeach me. And that's just part of the process. Uh, The idea that those things have to be released to the public, I think, again, going back to our BAWC argument, I I think you're starting to infringe on people's privacy rights. I don't think it's necessary for for activists to have websites to say, though, here's all these police officers and here's all the things they've done wrong. Uh, I I mean, I think you're just trying to embarrass people at that point. And the only effect that that's going to have is it's going to have a reduction in people who want to be police officers and it's going to drive people, uh, good, hardworking officers out of this industry. And I don't think that's good for anybody. Gregory Pemberton is chairman of the Washington, D.C. Police Union. Greg, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gil. It was a pleasure. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. We are learning many things about the SARS-CoV-2 virus. One of them is that it's incredibly stable and that the only mutation so far of any consequence has been, and this is something suspected rather than proven, a change that's made the virus more contagious. Now, that won't affect a vaccine when we get one, but it does mean this isn't going anywhere for now and will likely to still be making people sick and even killing people deep into the fall and election day. Of course, this has major consequences, not just for the election, but how we carry out a democratic small-D election in such times. Elections are always a concern to the League of Women Voters. Selena Stewart is their Senior Director of Advocacy and Litigation. Selena, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. 
What are the main challenges to this very unexpected condition for our elections? Okay, so some of the challenges include the fact that nobody saw this coming, right? <laughs> so there's no way. There was no way to really prepare for this. But now that it, the pandemic is here and we're seeing so many elections being impacted, I think the challenge is figuring out how to do this well. Um, we started in the primary season, but obviously, you know, this is leading up to the general election. So a lot of the cases that we're doing now is not only in preparation for the primary, but also so that we can see what issues happen in primary so we can also protect the general election as well. Well, let's start with the primaries then, because it showed us some of the problems that are going to come up, especially in Wisconsin. Uh, tell us about some of the problems that showed up there. So in Wisconsin, we had a situation where there was just a whole bunch of voter confusion, partly because the gut between the governor and the legislature, one branch of government was attempting to cancel the election or postpone it in order to make sure that people were able to balance the constitutional right with uh, health and safety. And then we had the legislature that wanted to move it forward and keep it going and make sure that, uh, you know, the election happened on time. But that caused so much confusion for voters. And so I think in that situation, when we brought that lawsuit, it was really to make sure that because Wisconsin was expanding the right to vote. So we wanted to make sure that there was a window of time available for people to not only get their ballots, but also submit them. And so the court allowed for a seven day window to allow, you can have your ballot, um, you could mail it on election day and it had seven days to arrive to your board of election officials and it would be counted. And so in that window, we had 237,000 people who were able to exercise the right to vote, which otherwise would not have been in place. But one of the problems we've seen in Wisconsin and other places, too, that's going to show up apparently in November is this um, contagious disease continues. Our poll workers are mostly seniors, one of the groups most in danger of dying from this virus. And many of them, as patriotic as they are and as much as they like to work Election Day, are worried about working amidst long lines of strangers that day. So having enough polling places open is going to be a challenge. Yeah, we've definitely seen that challenge across the country. There's a lot of poll consolidation. Now, in regular times, when we are outside of a pandemic, that's, that presents a huge issue. But in this case, we understand why poll consolidation is happening to limit um, the exposure. The other piece is because we have poll workers who are unable, who would otherwise be able to execute their jobs, are not able to do that. So absolutely, that we saw that in Wisconsin and Milwaukee specifically, particularly because there had only been one, I think it was only five polling locations in, at that time. But for Milwaukee, the just the the depth of voters, the amount of voters in that area created a huge problem. We also saw that in Georgia recently. You know, we've seen that in a, in a few places across the country. So this isn't a novel concept. As you consolidate polls, you do run the risk of people having to stand in really long lines, and you know it just causes it just causes an issue. So what we want to make sure that we do is we have enough polling locations to account for the people who are likely to show up. Across the country, we've seen double-digit trends, so we know that at least 15% more people, more of that voting population will be showing up. And so I think that that's a good gauge and barometer for election officials to use in trying to figure out how many polling locations do we need. The other part of that is that you have densely populated areas. When you have a densely populated area, it just dictates that you have to have enough polling locations. And so all of these factors really have to be taken into account as states and local officials are trying to to prepare for whether it's the primary or the general election. 
So, Selena, one of the problems, of course, if we have fewer polling places because we have fewer poll workers is counting these ballots because a lot of states say they don't have the manpower to count ballots in time. They may not only need an extension of time, as you got for a week anyway in Wisconsin, but they also may need many more people and and a longer time to really count all these mail-in and absentee ballots. That's absolutely correct. And one of the core messages at the league is, you know, when you expand in this way, when more people are exercising their or exercising their right to vote via a, an absentee ballot, then it's going to take more time. And I think that because, you know, we're a microwave society right now, we're just so used to popping it in and having something in, in 30 seconds. We one of the messages that we've tried to make sure that people know is it's going to take time. And so voters have to understand that because there's such a huge influx and the amount of work that poll workers are going to have to do, that it's just going to take more time to count. And so I think that that's a message that that needs to be reiterated over and over again, because we are in a place where people are just so used to getting results quickly. But the other piece of that is, you know, there is a shortage of poll workers. One of the things that the league is looking at right now is how do we um, impact that? Because we have a lot of members who do poll working, who are poll workers, but also um, do poll observation. And so how do we leverage our network in order to get more poll workers there, but also make sure that it's, it's done in a safe way? Because as you know, you know, members, many of the members in the league, the average age is 72. And so we are, we are a vulnerable population in and of itself. So we just want to make sure that we do what we can to spread the message that one, poll workers, you know, to the extent that people can be out there supporting and, and supporting the polls and at, the administrative process, great. But then we also just want to make sure that we're balancing that with health and safety and also that message that it's going to take time to do this. There is a claim that mail-in ballots are dangerous, that foreign countries or other organizations could counterfeit mail-in ballots. Is there anything to that? Well, I haven't seen any cases around that yet. <laughs> so so I, I just feel like if something is, is widespread and happening that frequently, as frequently as it's as it's indicated, that we would we would see cases around that, right? We would see we should we would be able to see more cases of voter or cases of voter fraud. And I just haven't seen that. Now if we're talking about interference, that's a whole other situation, but right. there is no evidence that an increase of of mail ballots leads to fraud. We still have mechanisms in place to verify ballot, whether that's through a signature. In many states, um, not only do you have a signature, but some states, you know, there are witness requirements, which we're trying to remove that that barrier for voters. But even in those states where a signature doesn't match or a signature is left off, the Board of Election officials usually call the voter or email the voter and say, hey, there's an issue with your ballot. And so the voter has an opportunity to, to rectify whatever is wrong. So I think that the same process are, are going to be followed for verifying a ballot. Ele- election administrators know what they're doing. So we just need to, to leave the process to be what it is. But no, there, I don't think that there's any validity to an expansion of mail ballots being an increase or any indicator of fraud. In many of the states, the envelopes are actually barcoded with a unique identifier that ties the ballot to that voter. So that's one of the backups that they do have for that. It's not like you can just print a whole bunch of envelopes and send them in. The great, the vast majority of states do have that. So especially when you are, when the state is, is leading that effort and sending out ballots to, 
to folks, yeah, you have a barcode. It's the same. We have a barcode in Maryland. We have it in DC. We have it in Virginia. It's in West Virginia as well. So this is this is common. Many, many states do that. So you're absolutely right that there is there is additional, there's a, numerous ways to verify the ballot and who's actually casting that ballot. We have five states now where they only vote by mail, with few exceptions, Colorado, Oregon, Hawaii, Utah, and Washington. So they're set up for a, a big number of mailed-in ballots because that's how they do it. The The question I have about that is, these days, not everybody has more than maybe a post office box with the housing shortage, now unemployment. We have American citizens, many of them with jobs who are living in RVs, and that's a growing problem and getting worse. How does that work with mail-in ballots for them? So I think in that case, like in, in the DMV area where we are, they the election administrators put up ballot boxes. So they were still manned by or womaned by, you know, a poll worker, et cetera. But it made the process so much easier. So you got your ballot in the mail. It has its unique mark. You fill it out, sign it, seal it, and then you drop it in a ballot box. And so those boxes, they are secure, but they're boxes that require less work because it's only one or two poll workers um, overseeing or monitoring that particular box. But that has been a way, a workaround in states and places where there aren't a lot of um, postal locations. So if that is the case, I definitely would recommend that they they look to other states that have used ballot boxes. You know, you have to go through certain parameters to make sure that those are secure. But I think once once you go through those process of securing that ballot box and putting them um, in multiple places, then you kind of circumvent that issue that you raised. We'll have more with Selena Stewart on voting in the age of virus coming up. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking about voting with Selena Stewart, Senior Director of Advocacy and Litigation for the League of Women Voters. We are interesting as a country in that we make it harder to vote than most countries, and not through things which we'll talk about in a moment, like trying to suppress a vote, but even having election day and a work day. Most countries vote on Sunday. We established Tuesday back in the days when most people were farmers. They traveled by horse and buggy. It might take a full day to travel to a polling site, and Tuesday was ideal because you wouldn't have to travel on the Sunday Sabbath, and it would not interfere with market day. On Wednesday, you could get back to your farm and deal with that. Is 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 the whole Tuesday and just trying to get more people to vote, make it more accessible to people, is the whole Tuesday voting thing just outmoded? Yeah. I was born in Australia, and Australia, of course, has compulsory voting. But here, I, I do think that Tuesday creates can create a barrier for a lot of folks in this country. Like, Tuesday is a work day. And so even if, even if you have the flexibility of being able to go to and from work, and a lot of people don't, you know, getting there, getting there can, can be a hassle. Like in Kentucky, they just had their election and the polls close at six o'clock. Most people are just getting off work at six o'clock. And so that created, that creates a barrier for people to be able to vote. So I do think that there, there are ways to, there are many ways to explore doing this differently. But I think because of what we have now, the importance of early voting and having those windows be as long as possible and to cover a weekend, the weekend before an election or the weekend um, just prior to an election, all of those things matter. 
So we can deal with the system that we have now. Tuesday, you know, Tuesday is what we've been doing forever. So I think that it's more about how do we create other opportunities that expand and allow people more options to vote. 2016, 55.6% of eligible Americans voted in non-presidential election years, of course. It's far worse than that. And that puts us behind Belgium, Sweden, Denmark, Australia, South Korea, Netherlands, Israel, New Zealand, Finland, Hungary, Norway, Germany, Austria, France, Mexico, Italy, Czech Republic, Canada, Greece, the UK, the Czech Republic, uh, Spain, Slovakia, Portugal, Ireland, and Estonia. We invented democracy. We don't seem to be that good at it. Does, Does anybody have any idea why? I mean, the simple answer is that this is more about power, right? You know, you got to follow the power stick, in my opinion. It's a very lofty position, whether it's local, state, or federal, to be an elected official. That that position comes with a lot of power. And so I think what we're dealing with is not not the pursuit of democracy so much anymore, but really the pursuit of power. And so I think that it's important to to find ways and to execute putting the power back in the hands of people. Like I mentioned earlier, like making sure that whoever's elected, whether it was the person you voted for or not, holding that person accountable is super important. And so I think, you know, as we as we think through what does democracy look like, you know, we have to think about those things. And the other part is, you know, we also have very low turnout rates. I think people are going through things right now that have motivated them to participate more. And so that also means before you go to the poll, people also want to be educated. So I know that, you know, more people have been using Vote 411, which is a league resource, which allows you to see the candidate, see what they believe in, see how they align with your values before you cast the ballot. I think that's going to be critical right now as more people begin to engage in the process to make sure that they're educated about which candidates actually align with their values. There's so many things we could talk about. Let me just ask you about one last thing, because you mentioned it earlier, and it may be something our listeners had not heard of, which is compulsory voting, which they have in Australia and other countries. How does this work, and why does it actually seem to drive turnout? Well, I think compulsory voting in and of itself sends the message that the government wants people to participate and and be engaged. And I think that that's that means something to a lot of people, no matter what country that you're in. But compulsory voting is, is really just, as you said, everyone is everyone is automatically registered to vote at a certain age, whatever that voting age is in the country, 16, 18, whatever. Um, and then you can, the, the state can impose penalties, but oftentimes they do not because voting turnout is, is much higher. Now, even in compulsory country or states that, I'm sorry, countries that have compulsory voting, the goal is to get voting above a certain threshold. Usually it's like that 67, 70% mark. And so there, there really is less incentive to um, leverage penalties when you have like an 85% turnout because you know that 85% of the population is voting and that's a reflection or the voting outcome best reflects the people actually living there. So I know that compulsory voting can be a hot topic, <laughs> so I won't, I won't go much further than that. But I think, I think there, there are a lot of ways for us to think through how, how we can encourage more people to engage and make, and make it worthwhile for Americans to participate in the electoral process. Well, this will certainly be an election unlike any other, and it will be a challenge for democracy for us all to bring this off in a way that seems to be satisfactory to everyone. We keep our fingers crossed that that is what will happen. Selena Stewart is the Senior Director of Advocacy and Litigation for the League of Women Voters. Selena, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate it. You're listening to America Changed Forever. 
from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. If we talk a lot about COVID-19 on this broadcast, it's because the virus has touched almost every part of our life. College classes are due to begin again this fall, or are they? The virus is just among a host of challenges we can talk about. Barbara Mystic is president of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. Welcome. How are you? Thanks. I'm happy to be here with you today. Happy to have you. And let's start with the most basic question. If things remain as they are right now, how do you reopen? Well, uh, you know, our colleges have been working on all sorts of contingency plans. So I would say that we are embracing the unexpected and about uh, 68% of our members are hoping to open this fall. They have a variety of plans, they have options and um, are very optimistic about a fall opening. How do you deal with things like dormitories, uh, cafeterias, gyms, sports, plays? Most campuses have put together committees, and these committees are looking at a variety of different options. Uh, The most common, uh, well, there are a couple of different scenarios that are most common right now. One is bringing back certain classes of students, so perhaps freshmen come on campus this fall and seniors come on campus, and then that allows you to reduce the capacity in the dorm and do single rooms. Uh, A number of institutions are looking at allowing students to move off campus sooner than they normally would. Um, You know, many institutions like to keep freshmen and particularly sophomores on campus, it helps build community and um, and students like being on campus with their <laughs> classmates. But um, we're making a lot of exceptions this year and just trying to make sure that the campus community is as safe as possible. There are some colleges, not a lot, but there are some that because they compress the college education into three years instead of four, have shorter semesters. A lot of them deal with like four, three-month semesters. Has there been much talk about that? I know schools that have uh, changed over to a quarter system so that they have uh, classes in smaller batches. Um, I know institutions that are looking at hybrid models. Um, Actually, we could probably talk for a long time. I have plenty of options that folks are doing um, just to try and make sure that when students come back that they are safe. So quarter systems, looking at hybrid where the class happens in person, but it's also broadcast online. Um, There are a number of institutions that have started to bring back some of of the athletes and they're looking at uh, putting them together in small groups, maybe a group of 10, and then testing that group. It sort of works as a pod to make sure it's a a smaller, safer group. So, you know, just a tremendous amount of planning. There's obviously a lot to be said for the campus socially, intellectually. Online education was growing in popularity anyway. No room and board. Mom's still doing laundry. There's that. Might this quicken the end or just diminish the importance of the college campus? Actually, I think it's the opposite. Uh, there's a silver lining to the whole COVID experience. I think it's the the value that's being placed now on the residential experience. I can't tell you how many students I've spoken to who say they want to go back to campus. And it is about the relationship with their professors in the classrooms. It's not exactly the same on Zoom. You can get interrupted on Zoom. You can't read everybody's, um, maybe you can't see everybody's face on the one screen. Uh, you know, so it's just not, students have said that they got through 
through the semester, but it wasn't the experience that they wanted. They they like the interactions that happen uh, casually and formally, the community that is developed on a college campus. So um, I think if anything that's happened here, it's really um, a great appreciation for what a difference it makes to have this residential away from home, independent experience. You know, there's what we want and there's what we end up getting though. And I wonder how that conversation is going. I mean, when I was in college, I was promised I'd be flying around in a jetpack to work by now. Uh, it didn't work out. So <laughs> when looking at this situation, how safe is it going to be to bring everybody back? Well, I think you're right about that. You know, we uh, every institution wants to get students back on campus, but we also want to do it safely. So I think a number of, you know, these different scenarios about bringing back smaller groups of students, looking at hybrid models, I think institutions will try um, a number of these different scenarios to try and make it as safe as possible. If it isn't working, I have no doubt that people will pull back to a safe strategy. Um, you saw that our institutions in, you know, in February, they were talking about study abroad and uh, the difficulty of bringing students home. It, you know, institutions reacted instantly. There was never any discussion about the cost of bringing students home. It was just, uh, you know, if people went into to reactive uh, mode to make sure students were safe. Our institutions will continue to do that. One of the things I've talked with families about over this last decade, uh, let the kids go to a community college, what they used to call junior college, for two years and then transfer to the big college. Is that something that maybe with what we're facing and this economic collapse, we may need to look at differently? You know, I think it's really important for each family to have these kinds of conversations. Um, you know, there are, is a tremendous increase today in transfer uh, agreements between community colleges and private nonprofit institutions, but also to public colleges. So you can transfer um, into almost any part of the higher ed sector from a community college. And for many students, it's a really great path. Um, you know, particularly if you need some, uh, you know, additional maybe you need to be at a different level on math than you are than you test in at college to go and do that at a community college really makes great sense it's not like colleges already did not have enough on their plate right now you're dealing with other social issues we've already had some big donors for whom buildings or schools were named embarrassing schools bill cosby harvey weinstein princeton has renamed its woodrow wilson school because though wilson was a leader in international relations he was an ardent segregationist who fired every black person he could in the federal government how much of taking this in are colleges and universities doing right now? Well, colleges are really a microcosm of what's going on in society at large. So I think you'll see many of these issues on college campuses this fall. But colleges also are an opportunity to have discussion and dialogue and talk about these issues. And that is absolutely critical to solving the challenges that we have in front of us. So, you know, I think it's um, uh, it's been a long time that, for these conversations to be underway. Just today, I got a an email from one of my daughters uh, about the high school that she had attended ha had always called their team, their mascot was the Indians. I can tell you that they've been talking about changing that mascot name for 40 years. And today they made that decision. So, you know, these particular times that we're in, I think what they're saying is that, you know, there's just no tolerance for not making decisions. We don't, we, it's not a time to keep talking. It's a time for action. And I think you'll see those conversations on college campuses this 
this fall, too. As a final thing, we have Black Lives Matter, we have Me Too, we have LGBT rights. How are these things changing campuses and the way we talk and teach history, language, literature, social studies, and are people on all sides open to an open debate in these things? I actually find students to be extraordinarily open about about all of these kinds of social issues. Uh, when they come to campus, they accept the students that are there. They accept their peers that are there. Um, you know, they're very open uh, about whether it's LGBT or whether it's about political perspectives. Um, so I really don't worry about <laughs> students. I know they're going to they're gonna talk about these issues and they're going to be very forthright about them. And that's the best thing that we can possibly do. And then we've got history to look back on. We've always addressed challenging issues over time. There's great ways through literature. Um, you mentioned earlier the discussion about what should you major in. I mean, what we're finding employers are saying that's most important for college skills today is creativity, problem solving. Uh, being being a good writer, uh, being able to communicate effectively. Those are the best skills that students can take out of the college experience and into the workplace today. There is a lot, as I said, on the plate of colleges this fall. Dr. Barbara Mystic is president of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. I thank you so much for being with us. I thank you for your time. and I thank you for your interest in what's happening on college campuses. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. As someone who's camped out at the North and South Pole and reported from our Arctic air base at Thule and in the Antarctic at McMurdo, I can tell you it's cold. Really, really cold. Or it was. In Arctic regions of Siberia, we are seeing and feeling something incredible. In the town of Verkoyansk, the temperature two weeks ago went over 100 degrees. In other words, it was hotter above the Arctic Circle than in Miami. Jeff Baradelli is a CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist. He looked at this a couple of days ago and says it's getting to be the rule rather than the exception. We've been seeing a ton of these heat waves in different places. It's not always in Siberia, but it's often been in Siberia, in the Arctic over the past five years. You know, part of this is due to natural fluctuations in weather patterns, but it's getting really hard to say that climate change is not making a big impact. We know it's making an impact. It's seemingly making a a big impact now. Climate change is is like the steroids. It takes a a normal weather pattern and and it infuses it with steroids. I mean, it's 100, it was 100.4 degrees in the Arctic. Now, I should say that in history, there have been a couple of times where temperatures have gotten to around 100 degrees in and around the Arctic Circle, literally a couple of times since we've been keeping records. But this would be the highest temperature ever in the Arctic. It has been warm since December and January. In fact, uh, temperatures in western Siberia have averaged about 10 degrees above normal Fahrenheit for all of those months. If you average all of those five months or so, um, and in terms of its departure from normal, it is twice that of the highest departure from normal before, back in 2016. So, you know, this is astonishing. As a meteorologist who's been doing, who's been doing this a long time, it's incredible. And just today alone, uh, some temperatures in, in parts of Siberia, 40 degrees Fahrenheit above normal, and fires have ignited all across Siberia and a lot of smoke as well. Just about 12 days ago, there were a few fires, and now there's dozens and dozens and dozens in Siberia. So the question is, Is this just a freaky few months, or are we going to see more and more of this in the years to come? It may not be always in the same place. Right now, it's in central Siberia. 
Um, it may move to a different part of Siberia, you know, different season, maybe later in the summer, maybe next year or the year after. Uh, it may move to Canada and, and Alaska. Alaska has been getting a lot of heat waves. Um, so basically the weather pattern, the incident weather pattern at that time kind of determines where it's going to be. And then climate change comes in and really pumps it up. So it will move. It will not always be in the same place, but you can bet your bottom dollar that we're going to see a lot more of these and a lot more intense heat waves in the future. And by the way, it, burnt, it, it burns uh, peat moss. It melts permafrost. That releases more carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, and that is a positive feedback loop, and it helps to make climate change even worse. So climate change causes it or helps to cause it, and it makes climate change worse, so on and so forth. CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist Jeff Baradelli. If the world is changing forever, it has consequences far beyond the fun of seeing Norwegians skiing down glaciers in bathing suits near 90-degree weather, which we just really saw. Melting sea ice has already caused the Alaskan town of Newtok to be evacuated, and flooding in places like Florida, Maryland, and New Jersey will get worse. We're not at the point of having oceanfront property in Nevada, but we are at the point of worrying about the Greenland ice sheet eventually melting which would raise sea levels by 20 feet. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.